Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning again. Um, I get the pleasure of reading the scripture for today. So if y'all could stand. And um, at the end, after I finished reading, I will say, if I remember, um, I will say, this is the word, word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. That's right. All right. Y'all sit alone. This is heavy. Um, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, or sorry, the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up an gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. We're in um, a series in the book of Romans and just going going line by line or passage by passage through the book of um, Romans. And And last week... And then this week, this, this week and next week, this passage that Katie just read, I'm going to take two weeks on. So this week and next week are both going to be on this passage, and they really fit together with last week. And last week, I started talking about how um, none of us would disagree, no one would disagree that like things aren't the way that they're supposed to be in the world, and, and, and probably to an extent, because we're not people wouldn't disagree that that's because we're not the way that we're supposed to be, and so the world that we've created isn't the way that it's supposed to be. But then last week, I spent some time just asking people for responses as to what's wrong and how to get wrong, and all the, they were all over the place, and that's where we would disagree on what was wrong and whose fault it was and when it went wrong and how to fix it. Um, and the, <clears throat> these, this first part of the, or the second part of the first chapter of the book of Romans, but really the first few chapters of Romans, are Paul um, talking about like what Paul's analysis or a biblical analysis of, of what's wrong and how it went wrong in setting us up for the gospel and how to fix it. And so last week I spent a bit of time right at the beginning just more topically talking about the idea of the ra- God's wrath 
and about how God has the right to have wrath because that's a people get I said this people get angry about God getting angry, which is really ironic the more you think about it. Um, but the, we get to be angry about everything, and our anger is meant to fix things. But when God gets angry, like you know, people are put off by that. But so God has the right to His wrath, and He, and he has wrath. Um, and then last week about how the problems it says that He revealed His divine nature and eternal power, but we suppress the truth. And so I spent some time talking about how we suppress the truth, um, and uh, the way that. Paul, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, and that, that had consequences. I found a, a verse, or a, not a verse, sorry, a quote this week from a um, man that I forgot to get in the notes, but um, from Blaise Pascal. He said, in faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. And I thought, I wish I'd found that quote a week earlier. In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. So that kind of, that last week fits. If you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. And then they, as how they tie together, when I was thinking about that, I thought about like this progression, that there's revelation. God reveals himself to us, his divine nature and his eternal power. More than that, his son is the exact radiance of the glory of God, or the exact representation of his nature, the radiance of the glory of God. So he's revealed himself to us. There's rejection and so we don't honor him as God or thank him for the things he's given us, but instead we look to the, the things as God's themselves. And then there's replacement. They exchange the truth of God um, for a lie. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We expect the things to do um, what only God can do, and that really is idolatry. Uh, and, we, and I think we do that because we think we can control the things, and we know we can't control the God, so it's easier with the things, and then wrath. So revelation, rejection, replacement, and wrath. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not very good at alliteration, so I was very proud of myself when that kind of dropped out. And so wrath is that God, this isn't the way that God created it to be, and God's not happy about that. We've rebelled against him. It's a, this is about him, and we've made it about us. And so those, those like four things really tie these weeks together, revelation, rejection, replacement, and wrath. And um, I'm gonna, so let me go through these three paragraphs in this passage and try and show like the same thing. So therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the, and served the, the cre- creature rather than the creator. So they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So they had revelation. There's truth. They exchanged it for a lie. They've rejected it, and then they've replaced it. They've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that is the because means that the therefore is like the God gave them up as a result of the because. God gave them up is God's wrath. And that's a kind of fascinating thing about this passage is that's God's wrath is he gave them up. He gave them over. The next paragraph, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, um, I'm going to, uh, part of the reason I'm taking two weeks on, these, on this passage is that so the next week I can spend a good, have, give myself a chunk of time to talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality and how the, how the church, you know, handles that or holds that, um, what the teaching of the Bible. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that in its fullness. But right now, I just want to 
you know, talk about this pattern. So when he talks about natural relations, there, there's an element of God's revelation in nature and the way that the natural way things are supposed to be, and there's a rejection of, you know, then, then giving that up for the unnatural. So it's a rejection and a replacement, and then a, and then a wrath. God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. And so again, God gave them up. And then the third paragraph, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And the revelation, again, is kind of implied, like we could acknowledge God because he revealed himself, but we didn't see fit to acknowledge God. We rejected God, and then we replaced him. And then he gave them up again to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and they were full of envy. And so there's like a progression of that and a, a given his wrath is him giving us over, and we're full of these things that we're not supposed to be full of. Um, I read someone in one of these commentaries a few weeks ago talk about how Romans 1 is really Paul's commentary in the first few chapters of Genesis, and um, that is, uh, man, just the more even the last bit as Katie was reading it. Uh, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to them, like is another reflection of Genesis chapter 1 where God said, surely you'll die. Like we know that, but we reject it. And, um, and so I think it is a commentary. Now people, someone this week at the men's Bible study, men, we're, there's a group of us getting together at 6.30 on Wednesday mornings. We'd love to have you join us there. And just talking through, hashing through um, some Genesis and life, and it's good. Um, but someone who's newer to the church noted that I keep going back to the book of Genesis. Said, yeah, I've been getting made fun of for that for like 15 years now. And, um, and, and there's a reason I, I do that. And part of it is that it's just brilliant. The first few chapters of Genesis are brilliant. I remember a guy years and years ago saying, if you don't understand the first three chapters of the Bible, then you really just don't understand the Bible. And I thought, I think I kind of understand the Bible. I mean, this is a long time ago, but, and I know I don't understand the first few chapters of Genesis. But then about the time that we started the church, um, I preached through the beginnings of Genesis, and I realized I'd been avoiding it because, because it's Adam and Eve, and how old is the earth, and a talking snake, and Apple trees being the genesis of all the problems in the world seems kind of simplistic. But then I preached it, and I thought, man, this, is, this was recorded during the Bronze Age. I had to look that up this week. Like, it was recorded 3,500 years ago. I don't know when it happened. It was recorded by Moses 3,500 years ago during the Bronze Age, and it reads us like a book today. It's brilliant. And so that's part of the reason I refer back to it. Part of it is that God is consistent. And so people talk about the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, but God is God throughout the whole of the book. And starting from um, the beginning and in Genesis, and it's important to see that his character and his approach to humanity has been consistent. And Romans 1 is almost a way of saying, saying, see, I told you this is what was going to happen. And in that original, the first few chapters, you see the beginnings of revelation, rejection, replacement, and wrath even there. So God puts um, maybe especially replacement. And so God puts Adam and Eve in a garden. He give, puts two trees there, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And the tree of life is a way of saying, hey, let's hang out forever. You guys keep eating of this tree of life. You're going to live forever. We're going to you know, live in this Eden forever. And, um, uh, and that's what... what God wants, you know, but then there's the tree of knowledge, which is almost like God saying, hey, we got to keep straight that I'm the smart one in this relationship. 
you know, as long as we keep straight that I'm the smart one in this relationship, things are going to work out okay. Now, if you're married, one of you is thinking, or maybe both of you are thinking, man, like, yeah, if we could keep that straight in our relationship, like, things will be a lot better, you know, than they are. But, that's, but with God, it's, he's God, and you're not, and so it's legitimate when it's God, you know. And it says, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you will surely eat of the tree, every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You will surely die. And so that's revelation. God has revealed himself um, to them. And, um, and, but then they reject it, so rejection. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is where at our Bible study Wednesday morning, um, Steve said it, like, this is, this is the exchange. She exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so the truth of God is that God was good, and God loves you, and God's smarter than you, and God has your best in mind, and he is worthy of all your trust. And the lie is that God doesn't love you. Really, God loves himself, and he wants to control you. And you are better off on your own. You are better off trusting yourself than you are fully trusting the Lord. And that is the lie that we've probably all believed this morning at some point, that we are better off trusting ourselves than we are trusting the Lord, that we are smarter than God. Um, and the lie that we can be like God. Which the irony is that God made us like God. He made us in his image, but we wanted more than that. And I think it means we wanted his glory um, and knowledge. We wanted to be the ones that dictate what good and evil is. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And this is where replacement, like in this, what happens in this moment is what, where replacement starts, where idolatry starts. And idolatry is a, is a heart thing. Um, it's, um, I was in Cambodia years ago and we went to a Buddhist temple, uh, which was surprising in a lot of different ways. It was a lot, a lot of the priests or monks were young guys that honestly were just trying to wait around to figure out what to do next in life and dressed in kind of orange outfits. A lot of them were smoking. That was a surprise. And, um, which, whatever, that's fine. It's not a pejorative thing, but it just was surprising. And then they took us into the temple, and, like, there were all these Buddhas in there. And that's what you think of when you think of idolatry. But idolatry is, re is replacing God with something else, putting something in God's place. And, um, and, so it's the, and so the way that it's recorded, it says, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So something in that, their eyes were opened, but they knew that they were naked and they covered themselves, which means they felt shame in that instant. Um, this, is, this is probably one of my five favorite books, Searching for God Knows What, because he goes through how the gospel works at a heart level. And 
really part of the, I think the reason he wrote the book is he took an Old Testament class with a guy named John Salehammer who, um, who pointed out that in the hundred Hebrew words that, Gen- that Moses used to write those first few chapters of Genesis, five times he mentions this idea that they were naked and then they realized that they were naked. Like they didn't have any clothes on and that was fine, but then they had clothes on and just how odd it is that, that Moses would bring that up and especially write in the beginning of the Bible and just the idea of being naked and how, like, it's just kind of odd that being, and if you're going to be naked and be comfortable with somebody, it would be with your spouse, but even with each other, they're not comfortable. And now we're not comfortable at all. And I'm not sure how, like, just standard evolutionary theory explains clothing, but it's not just covering up because it's cold out. You know what I mean? It's, there's a shame element to it. And, um, and, there's, but there's something about that, because if, if any one of us were naked right now, like, none of us would be thinking about anything but the fact that someone in here is naked and they need to cover up. So it's an odd thing, you know? And he, um, and so he talks about, like, what's happening at a heart level. And so this is maybe the most concise bit of how he puts it. He's, here's what I think Moses was saying. Man was wired. Man is wired, so he gets his glory. His security, his understanding of value, his feeling of purpose, his feeling of rightness with his maker, his security for eternity from God. And this relationship is so strong and God's love is so pure that Adam and Eve felt no insecurity at all. So much so that they walked around naked and didn't even realize they were naked. But when that relationship was broken, they knew it instantly. All of their glory, the glory that came from God, was gone. It wouldn't be unlike being in love and having somebody love you, and then all of a sudden that person was gone. And man, like that, the relationships we have, um, that can be losing a, a parent. And, and we're meant to get our idea of who we are from outside of ourselves, and God gifts that through parents, through family, through spouses, through children. And when you, when you lose that, like there's just a, a hole. Some of you have experienced divorce. And you've had a person that has said, till death do us part, and a person that's cared for you, and at the end of each day wanted to know how things went, and then that person's gone. And, like, that's an an element of that. Um, He goes on, like, being a kid lost in the store. I distinctly remember walking through a mall as a kid, Brookfield Square, and holding my dad's hand, and then I let go of my dad's hand to look at something in a store window, and then I grabbed my dad's hand again, and dad pulled his hand away. And I looked up like, what are you doing? And it wasn't my dad. And I'm like, I don't know where my dad is. And like in that moment, you're just like, there's nothing going on in the world except for the fact that I'm lost in a mall and I don't know where my dad is. I had a recurring dream when I was a kid. We went to Disney, and we went to the Kennedy Center. And I don't even remember doing this, but the, but the tour bus took us like to the far reaches of whatever property the, the space thing is on. And we got off the bus. And I kind of wandered off, and everybody got back on the bus. And my parents knew I'd wandered off, but they had to get back on the bus because they had to catch the bus, and then they had to catch their plane. And then I'm on a payphone with my parents, and they're in Milwaukee, and I'm in Florida, and they're like, well, good luck. And, like, I had this dream over and over again. Um, and there's something, like, there's something that we were, that's gone. He says, all of the insecurity rises the instant you realize you're alone. No insecurity was felt when the person who loved you was around, but in his absence, it instantly comes to the surface. In this way, Adam and Eve were naked and weren't ashamed when God was around, but the second the relationship was broken, they realized it and were ashamed, and that's just the beginning. 
If man was wired so that something outside of himself told him who he was, and if God's presence was giving him a feeling of fulfillment, then when that relationship was broken, man would be pining for other people to tell him that he was good, right, okay with the world, and eternally secure. As I wrote earlier, we all compare ourselves to others, and none of our emotions like jealousy and envy and lust could exist unless man was wired so that somebody else told him who he was and that somebody else was gone. That's why I love this book. He, like, just fleshes that out in the book. He said, think about it for a second. Moses, in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, has presented a personality theory more comprehensive than the writings of Freud, Maslow, Frankel, and Skinner combined, and he did it in only 100 words. Uh, rejection has led to this place where there's, we, need we need to replace something because it's gone. Um, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The one that defined them in the most positive sense had become the one that they were most afraid of. And like reading that on an emotional level, the passage is a complete and utter tragedy. And we live on an emotional level. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's, that's the beginning of idolatry. And it gets off to a really strong start. Like, just like that, boom, we're open to anything. They lose their sense of identity, whether or not they're good and loved. They need to replace it. They start by covering up. They feel shame. They cover up. They hide from God. They're going to blame each other in a second. They're going to compare. It's going to crush their marriage. And, and in the next chapter, one of their children is going to kill another one because of these dynamics. And that's the beginning of, of idolatry. Um, Tim Keller has a great book, Counterfeit Gods, about idolatry. He, this is how he defines an idol. Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so in some way, I think Satan tricked them into like self being, maybe self is the source of our idols or what we think ultimately we trick ourselves into, but that's what we're putting in that place. But whatever it is, like that's still the problem. Uh, and so this passage in Romans, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, like is a picture of what happened at the beginning. And again, like, like Paul saying, or God saying, see, I, I told you this is how it was going to go. Uh, and so he gives us over to the lusts of our hearts. He gave us kind of what we asked for. And so what... What are your idols? What are the things that you think, man, if I, what are the things, you have to spend some time with it, where, or maybe ask someone close to you, because they'll, they'll probably know. Like, if I just had this, then life would be not, not complete, maybe, but a massive step closer to complete. If I just, this thing just fell into place in my life. Um, or if I lost this, then life might not be worth living. Like, everything would fall apart if this one piece, with this chunk was taken out. Those are idols. Uh, Keller writes, each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its 
shrines, whether office towers, spas, and gyms, studios, or stadiums where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster? What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but the same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. That's idolatry. Um, And those are all good things. Money and sex and family and reputation and pleasure and vacation, retirement, success, beauty, all those are good things, but but there's some line they pass over where they become not gifts from God, but God's. And, and we all deal with that. Um, I heard him, heard him say recently, I'd never heard him say this before, but man, I thought it was brilliant, that anxiety is like idolatry mapped onto the future. Like if I don't get this thing or if something happens to this thing and it makes us anxious and it's just a future idolatry and anger is idolatry mapped onto the present. Like someone mess, someone's messing with this thing right now. And guilt is idolatry mapped onto the past. If I just done that, or decided this, or not done this, or not screwed that up, then. So, so revelation, rejection, and then replacement um, is putting those things in God's place instead of worshiping God and restoring him to his place in our hearts. And that's a moment-by-moment thing. That's a war. Uh, John Calvin said once, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. There's a woman named um, Rosaria Butterfield, who um, I may mention next week. She was a tenured professor at um, Syracuse and had been living with her female partner for like 20 years. And she ended up, she was doing a project and put something in the newspaper, developed a friendship with a local pastor. And she just ended up reading the Bible a bunch of times and becoming convicted of her her lifestyle changed. She now lives in Durham and is married to a Presbyterian pastor, but she has done a bunch of writing and speaking. She said, one very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. One very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My my sin feels like life to me, plain and simple. My heart is an idol factory and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Hmm. In Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me, is getting into replacement. In Jeremiah, my people have committed two great sins. They have forsaken me, the fount of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water, is getting it idolatry. When Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength and all of your soul, is getting it idolatry, replacement. So revelation, rejection, replacement, and then, and then wrath. So God gave them up to the lust and the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And so wrath, I think there are a lot of different ways to talk about wrath. This isn't the only one, but 
but in this and other passages, it's clear wrath is, there's almost a passive nature to it of God leaving you alone with your idols. And that'll be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Um, the, the word in the first one gave them up in the lust of their hearts is epithemia, which is like desire on steroids, like an over-desire, an all-controlling drive and longing. And again, like that ties back to what happens in Genesis 3. And just in this instant, they're just scrambling to find something to replace what they've lost, and we're still doing it. The, the, our problem isn't so much desires for bad things, but over-desires for good things thinking that they'll give us something that they weren't intended to give us. Um, and the last, the last few weeks or months, like thinking about this passage and wrath, last week I talked about wrath in terms of parenting and the difference between, there's a word thumos, which is like a, just a rage flying off the handle, and orge, which is like a more settled, decided wrath. This is almost, this almost feels different. I thought the worst, the scariest thing you could see a parent do with their kids is to kind of passively say, um, you know, if when my kids were five, and I said, you know what, if you want to eat Pop-Tarts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I just don't care anymore. You know, just go ahead. <laughs> my daughter's in the back saying, why didn't you do that? Um, but like a, like a passive, I'm just sick of trying to get you to do the right thing, so do whatever you want. If a parent did that, like, that would be scarier. The opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference, right? And God's not indifferent, but that's maybe a way of thinking about this or understanding that if God just said, you know, go ahead. And as your kids get older, you kind of just have to say, go ahead, because you can't control them. But God could control them. You know, this, and he, he says this is, he gives us freedom, um, that's not this. Uh, that, the word for gave them up is a Greek word, paradidomai. And so here's a couple other places that's used. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all I have away, I deliver up my body to be burned. Deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. There's an emotion in that passage. In Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live... I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself up for me. That's paradidomized. And there's an emotion in Christ giving himself up for us. Second Peter 2, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness, like gave them up. And, um, and so there's an emotion to the Lord, I think, giving us over to the epithemias, the lusts of our hearts, uh, and that being his wrath. But man, that's a scary, that's scary. Um, and I'll go through those passages, like the progression of them, because that last paragraph, I, I, th I think has to be one of the best descriptions of hell in the Bible. Um, and God, I'll say this again, going back to Genesis 1, God is consistent in his approach to us. So in Genesis 1, he puts that tree of knowledge in the middle of the garden, but he doesn't put a fence around it, and he doesn't put armed guards around it. He says, it's there. It's a bad idea. It'll lead to death, but if you want to do it, I'm not going to stop you. Uh, it's like he's saying our relationship is going to be based on trust, not power and manipulation. 
And similarly, in Romans, God's wrath is manifested in God giving us what we want. God leaving us alone with our idols. Um, I read a quote this week from Oscar Wilde. When the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. So revelation, rejection, replacement, and wrath. And um, for a second, like leaning into the idea of hell, what does hell look like? It's a world where, where God has removed himself and, like, and let us give ourselves to these desires in our heart that can't do the thing that only God uh, can do. And it's like another conversation about what people really think happens in the next life. Like I think people think like things are going to get fixed in the next life. Most people believe there's a next life and people think things are going to get fixed. But I don't think they think a lot about how things are going to get fixed. And I think if, if they were really pressed, they think it's going to get fixed because those people are going to get fixed. I might get fixed a little bit, but those people are either going to get fixed a lot or just not be there. When, when the Bible is clear, like, these people need to get fixed. This person needs to get fixed. And, and he said that, and then he said, here's how I'm going to fix it, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to start right now. And that's what we're doing, you know. But God's got a plan for that. People tend to think that heaven is going to be the fulfillment of their desires instead of God's desires. It's going to be the place we go to get things the way we want. And we might be right that the next place is the life where we get things the way we want, but that might not be. If we're not surrendered to what the Lord wants, it's not going to be heaven. Uh, Wrath is God leaving you alone with your idols. Or maybe, because there's, there's ways that that hell is described almost passively, but ways it's described actively where God locks you up with your idols. Um, I used this quote last week, and it's maybe a great summation of this passage, and it's C.S. Lewis, predictably, because I refer to him a lot too, but human history is a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And hell may just be a continuation of that. These passages are like sobering passages, hard passages. And when we decided to preach Romans and just looking at how the book is structured, we knew these first month or two were just going to be hard, and it's supposed to be, and it's meant to be, because it's it's looking the problems square instead of avoiding them. Um, That quote from Rosario Butterfield that the heart makes idols and the mind justifies them is like, I don't know how you feel about that. I don't feel good about that at all. Um, Yesterday, Saturdays I try not to, it's like Sabbath is E days and don't do much. And I love watching soccer. And the team that we follow won a game yesterday at the death. It was unbelievable. And I watched like celebration scenes afterwards. But after a while I was like, I wonder how excited we'd be if Jesus came back, like if we'd be half this excited, you know? And then I saw a picture late in the day that I don't know if you guys have seen this. It was from the earthquake in Turkey, and um, it was a man that's probably about my age holding, he's sitting next to a pile of rubble and holding his daughter's hand who had passed away in the rubble. 
And I know we can't, we don't hold the weight of the world and we can't do that, but like something's not, something's not ordered the way that it's supposed to be in my own heart. And so this, and that's where this is all meant to lead us. Maybe my favorite passage in Romans is at the end of chapter 7, Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And that's where it's meant to drive us, is to like a, a desperation before the Lord to fix us. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all meant to drive us to understand the depth of our problem and our need for Christ, and that Christ didn't come as a, as a good teacher to help us develop a few good habits. Um, he came as a savior to make spiritually dead people alive and to make us new. And no matter how long you've been following Jesus, like you're not who you used to be, but you're not who you're supposed to be. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the band come back up, and I don't know where the Lord takes you in that. You know, that I said this, the passage last week spoke to this. They failed to honor him and give thanks to him, and so there's a place to start of, like, honoring him as Lord, which we have a chance to do in worship, and thanking him, which we have a chance to do in communion. And so um, we're going we're gonna to be up here and over the next few minutes offering offering communion if you're new to Oak City, the way that we do that is we'll have the bread and the, and the cup and the juice, and, um, and you can come up at whatever point you want to during the next few songs, and, and as you come up, we'll say this is the body of Christ that's been broken for you, and you don't have to say anything or say thanks be to God or amen or whatever you want to, or just take that, and then um, my wife will be up here saying this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and again, you don't have to, you don't have to say anything to that, but, but if you have accepted the solution to these problems is the body and blood of Christ, that the one who didn't have those problems, who had perfect relationship with Father, who lived a sinless life, who showed us the life that was meant to be, but then died for the consequences of us being unable to do that, and rose from the dead to show us that there is a power that can make us new. And the same Spirit of God that raised him from the dead can be in us. Then that's what we're remembering this morning. And man, I hope, I hope, the passage drives us to a place of having a renewed sense of thanks or a deepened sense of thanks of what he's done for us. Father, thank you that you don't um, avoid the hard, the hard news, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to understand this passage the way that you intend for us to understand this passage, that you would speak to us individually in our hearts, God. Forgive us for, for rejecting the, the ways you revealed yourself to us, Lord, for replacing you with something else that we can control that we think will make us happy when in reality it's you, Lord. Um, spare us from your wrath, God, and thank you for doing that through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, God, and giving us the, the promise and the hope and the security of life with you, God, that starts now in relationship with you, Lord. Make us more like you. Make us who we were made to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.